Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in Game Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Rudolf Inderst, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Jeremiah McCall, the author of a Game Studies publication from 2023 called Gaming the Past, Using Video Games to Teach Secondary History. The publisher is Routledge. Before we jump right into, though, I want to let you know that if you like our show, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the audio platform of your choice and share this episode and all the others, of course, with your friends. And now back to the show. Despite the growing number of books designed to radically reconsider the educational value of video games as powerful learning tools, there are a few practical guidelines conveniently available for prospective history and social studies teachers who actually want to use these teaching and learning tools in their classrooms. As the games and learning field continues to grow in importance, Gaming the Past provides social studies teachers and teacher educators help in implementing this unique and engaging new pedagogy. Jeremiah will come to the show. Thanks, Rudolph. I'm delighted to be here and and talk about this book and talk about history and games. Well, I wonder if you could begin the interview by telling us a bit about yourself. Sure. So um, my uh, academic training is in Greek and Roman history. I got a PhD in it, oh, maybe 20 plus years ago. Uh, And it turned out through this and that life decision that my calling was to be a high school history teacher. Uh, So I have spent the past 22 years teaching uh, mostly ancient world history, but also modern world history and topics like that uh, to uh, high school students. And I do so now at Cincinnati Country Day School, which is a fantastic school in uh, Cincinnati, USA. Um, and I do a lot of work with uh, using video games in uh, history classes. And then I also do a fair amount of work uh, researching and writing about history games just in general, as part of historical game studies. Well, of course, we have to check for your Ludo street credibility. So please tell us what's your favorite game and the one or even the ones you're playing right now. I mean, not right now, of course, but right now. (laughs) (laughs) So so in my defense, um, I like indie games a lot. So usually the games I mention are not going to be like ones that people think about a lot right now. Oh, and the other thing is I wait for games to go on sale. Um, So the one that I'm actually playing right now is Phoenix Point, which is a turn-based XCOM-like strategy game where you're fighting off uh, aliens with your squads of soldiers. Uh, And it's extra fun if you name all the soldiers with names of your friends and and colleagues so that you want to keep them alive and make them do well. Uh, So that is is the game I'm currently playing right now. Uh, I I guess the other little indie game that I've really been enjoying is, uh, what's it called? I think Dome Defender. You're defending a little dome against aliens that are coming. Uh, This is the theme, right? Aliens, apparently. Aliens are attacking your dome, and you have to mine resources in order to upgrade your domes. So I don't know if that gives me Ludo Street credibility, but that is the truth. 
<laughs> I think it's it's fine. <laughs> just uh, just was thinking about this alien stuff. Yeah, right. The credo is aliens. Yeah. Well, your book, on the other hand, focuses on specific examples to help social studies educators effectively use computer simulation games to teach critical thinking and historical analysis. Please tell our listeners, how did you come to write Gaming the Past in the first place? Great. Well, I think maybe I should first say, uh, you know, as we go into this, that this is very much a book that I think is useful for any history educator. Um, Routledge, other major publishing companies have a sense of what markets you have to target when you're writing and titling your book. And apparently, I figure this out in bits and pieces, apparently there's a sense that people who claim to write books that are both for high school and college educators tend to get more roundly criti or heavily criticized. So um, I had to pick one. And so I picked, I picked where my heart is and where my primary work is with Uh, high school history teaching or secondary school teaching. Um, but I really think this is useful for any any history educator um, at any level. But, okay, so that said, um, I was struck by the power of doing interactive, uh, more experiential learning with my students from an early age when I was, when I was teaching Western Civ, back when they called it Western Civ uh, in colleges, uh, you know, as a, as, a, as a PhD candidate. Um, and I experimented a little with uh, active learning techniques and things like that. So um, I, I think I tried to borrow a colleague's uh, feudalism simulation where you had people swear loyalty to lords and vassals and things like that. Uh, and then from there, I started to experiment a little bit with physical games, with, with board games, and made a couple for some students and continued to think that they were really powerful ways to get students engaged in the history, though I hadn't quite thought through exactly you know, why that might be. So I went from there into uh, teaching high school, as I said, teaching at Cincinnati Country Day School. And I was so fortunate that they had the technological resources that I had a laptop and all of my students had a laptop. And so, and this was back in 2002 or three. Um, and yes, a long time ago. Um, um, and so I started to Uh, think about ways that I might use computer tools on top of, of physical games. And in 2004, that school year, um, I, taught a, I taught a course called Historical Simulations, where students were going to come in and we were actually going to uh, play some, but make physical, you know, board game historical simulations. Um, so in that class, as part of it, I thought, you know, I, Civilization Three was trending at the time, and I thought, you know, this game doesn't do a, a bad job in general, broad brushstrokes, um, telling you about the ancient world and some of the systems in the ancient world. I wonder if I could have the kids play it, and then we could we could talk about it as a, as a simulation. Um, so that was like my first use of it. So what I guess seventeen or eighteen years ago, and what I found was there was there was interest there that um, I began to get. Uh, uh, invitations to conferences to speak and things like that, and invitations to do writing on games and history um, because it, it, it was resonating with people, but there wasn't there weren't many people who could really speak to how it was being used. Um, 
So that led me to write the book uh, in an act of, I guess, courage or foolishness. Um, yeah, I know, right? I, uh, I decided that I would write the book um, based on my experiences as a teacher. So this would be 2010 that I'd write it and I'd submit it to Routledge uh, and, and uh, we'd go from there. And I did. And uh, it was apparently very well received. That's, that's a, I won't tell you how small the number of sa- uh, sold copies is, but apparently in academic books uh, fields, that's very well received, they told me. <laughs> I, needless to say, I have not retired yet uh, on, on the funds from the book. Um, but it went so well and people were so positive about it in the community over the next decade or so that I had the opportunity to revise it into a second edition. And so that's what came out in 2023, this second edition of Gaming the Past. Um, and the through line is I wanted to have a practical guidebook for people who said, yeah, I want, I want to use historical games in my history classes. How do I do it? Yeah. And this seems to be this 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 very point you were mentioning actually a handbook a guideline something you can work with this is so this is so important mm-hmm. um, because it seems to me that there's still this enormous gap between um, between the more theoretical frameworks or side when it comes for example to conferences and really people who need to to have something in their hands to work with something practical. Uh, so to yeah, speak. I, so this is this this book is really groundbreaking. Well, thank you. That's yeah. I mean, that's really my sense is that um, I, I I do. I mean, <laughs> I don't know what one says about themselves. I I, I do okay as as a scholarly thinker. I I, I do okay. But at mm-hmm. the end of the day, what I really enjoy doing is translating some of that more abstract discussion into something that somebody yeah can use in a classroom to me implementation is the most exciting part of of uh education um so yeah i i I think there's a lot of ideas out there and i think they're really good but um education is enriched when people who are experts in their fields get translated become practical become useful so right yeah so let's start our deep dive then. Um, okay. It seems that um, the very foundation of your book can be summarized with the following premise. Historical games can serve as a critical learning tool. And I'd like to talk to you about certain aspects that focus upon this credo with uh, coming from different angles. So Terrific. maybe let's start with the first one. You describe video games as an important form of new media and a popular form of participatory public history. So I really believe games are, are um, uh, uh, am I going to say it? Oh, I think they're unique. I really think they are. Um, I understand. I understand that they remediate. I understand that they copy. I understand that you can do very powerful and moving interactive things with other media, uh, depending about how you define it. Um, and the thing that a game does to me that seems to be its particular province, the game as a medium, the thing that it does and it does better than any other medium is it lets a player make choices that affect the story, choices that affect the, if you want, the diegetic level, but really just place, uh, excuse me, choices that affect the story. Um, And 
all other media give you lots of choices, but very rarely do they give you the ability to make choices that affect the outcome of the story. And so um, to me, um, that is kind of a, a, a core point. And then the idea of a new media, um, you know, one of the things that we talk about very often in, in secondary education, and I assume it gets talked about a fair amount in uh, collegiate education, is, is the different media that students are exposed to and how, right, we, we, we have, it's getting better, but we have often taught as if text is the only way that one could communicate ideas properly and, you know, the only way to critique ideas properly. Um, and so video games, um, you know, challenge that. And I think, you know, they have become more and more, I mean, the, right, uh, it used to be, I have some colleagues who don't like it when we justify the importance of video games by looking at sales. So I'm not going to look at recent sales, but we all know it's out there. The video game medium is incredibly popular, incredibly broad. And so understanding that these, the historical ones of these make claims about history. And perhaps in the critique, we can learn more about history and about critical studies of history by looking at the claims that they've made. Um, and then popular history is something I've come to. I, I, I'm, I wish I wish I were a better popular historian. I don't I don't think I fully qualify, although I did write a, a companion article for, for, for one of the handbooks. Um, right. This idea of history that is being taken and and adapted and interpreted and appreciated by people outside academia, um, outside formal educational circumstances. And we talk about uh, museums and historical parks and people talk about theater and things as public history. Video games are too. They are very rarely, they're very rarely made by um, devoted historical academics. They're made by, by bright, interesting people who are interested in interpreting the past. And I think kids should look at that. Hmm. I was just thinking when you were mentioning, uh, actually sales, because I just, I just, um, wrote a text yesterday, um, for some form of internal newsletter. And of course I was already, I, I was writing about sales as a, as a door opener, you know, some kind of sure. life hack if you want to talk about games. And the moment I was writing this very sentence down, I thought, oh, it's the trap again. Mm -hmm. It is. But it, I, yeah. I, yeah, we are in a capitalist society, right? And so we, we, we consciously or unconsciously justify things in terms of sales. Yeah. Um, you also see historical games then as excellent tools for thinking about human agency and human choices and actions within systems. And then I thought you will make a lot of ludologists very happy with this argument, I guess. And did you, when you said ludologists, I saw your note there. Did you mean as opposed to narratologists? Right, yeah. We, because we were talking about systems and rules and mechanics. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, this is it. This is real talk. Now we're talking, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I uh, you know, if you followed my timeline, I was starting, right, working on this stuff in 2004, 2005. So uh, my initial readings as I tried to grab every book I could were very much locked into the debate of ludology. Totally, uh, versus yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, um, it, definitely. I, 
I think that I think that story is very important in historical games. It has to be right because you've got to have some kind of narrative experience either while you're going along, if if that's in fact how we make narrative, or constructing it after the fact. Um, right? You have to have some kind of narrative because history would imply some kind of um, um, narrative construction, right? At least cause and effect and, and things like that. Um, so it's important, but yeah, I'm very interested in the mechanics. Um, uh, you know, I, I, I'm interested in all video games and I'm, and, and I'm trying to, you know, kind of cast as or historical video games, and I'm trying to cast as wide a net as possible for teachers, um, uh, about these types of games. But my, my, I don't think it's much of a secret. My particular passion is for games that are modeling systems. So as much as I love to play an Assassin's Creed, I get much more intrigued as a teacher by a civilization, for example, with with its systems um, that allowing people to kind of make arguments about the past that are that are based on systems rather than based on just uh, visuals. Um, so, yeah, that I, I think that. Um, so if you look at it that way, right, you're a player agent um, and you're in a world where you got you, you get to make choices within systems. And sometimes you're allowed to do things and sometimes you're not allowed to do things and you make these choices and you have effects to your choices. So that's going on in every historical video game. And that to me is a pretty uh, useful analogy for thinking about our world, right? Where there are lots of world systems and we can't, you know, control all of them and we can work with some of them and avoid others and, and, and make choices. And I guess this idea of human agency is captured in your idea about historical problem spaces then. I hope so. Um, so about a decade ago, um, I was, I was doing some writing with, uh, the play the past blog, which was a great early group of historical game studies folks. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I remember. Yeah. Yeah, it's 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 still live. You can still check it out. Uh, play the past. Um, and I there was a great conversation going on at the time by some scholars who were looking at Sid Meier's colonization, uh, the remake, the 2008 remake, and really taking it to task for a lot of the deeply problem problematic um, uh, sort of imperial colonial uh, messages that were that were going on in that. And I. I it was a discussion about how how Native Americans are depicted uh, problematically in the game, and 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 a discussion about enslavement and the lack of the lack of uh, of African enslavement in in a in a game that is focused on colonialism and imperialism, right? Which is is perhaps the initial perpetrators of of African slaver of slavery in some sense. And I and and they were great. And what I remembered thinking to myself, though, was I don't know if our game designers are thinking about they're not thinking about the world like a critic, probably, because I mean, you can't you, you, that's a, that's sort of a different mode of what you're doing. They're thinking about the world as game designers. And so this idea then that games are historical problem spaces, if you look at a historical game, any historical game. It's basically going to portray the world in terms of an actor, I, I call him a player agent, in a game world with a goal set by the designers. And if the player agent chooses to pursue those goals, that game world is going to have things that help them and things that hinder them. 
And if you think about it, right, that that's the deal. If, if any history game. I, so let me stop for a second. I'm not sure you can have a historical game that doesn't have a historical world implied, at least. If it's got a world, then it's got an actor with some kind of goals uh, set for it, and it's trying to achieve, and the player may choose to achieve those goals. So I think that's really the key to understanding historical games as a medium and teaching them is to understand that they're not giving you an open narrative. They're not giving you a linear story. They're giving you an identity to take on a world that you're in some kind of goals that if you choose to pursue them, because you don't have to, right, that you will go through that world and you'll, and you'll interact with things. And a lot of your interaction will be based on, is this going to help me or is this going to harm me? Um, So I think that's a really important way. It it makes for easier analysis and getting kids to understand or getting students to understand the details of games. Um, But I think it also says something about, why historical video games look the way they do so often in your in your next talking point then you frame historical games as a tool which can be used to encourage and foster historical questioning and criticism and you also add the learning itself comes from those questions and criticism from so-called purposeful play yes indeed so I think there's an idea, and 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 sometimes I'm having conversations with people in the past from a decade or so. I you you had a question later on about whether you know some criticisms were still being uh, levied about uh, games, um, but so maybe nobody's doing this. I doubt it. Um, there seems to be this idea for some that a historical game could only teach if it is an accurate historical game. Um, and historical accuracy is is a, a loaded term. Um, I, I end up having to get into all sorts of debates with people when I use it. For me, I use I, historical accuracy for me, at least in terms of a game, means something that conforms reasonably to the available historical evidence. So that that's that's what I mean by it. But the idea that it has to be that way, that it has to present you a real presentation or an accurate presentation of the past in order to be useful, um, there's a couple of problems there. One, again, the term's very problematic. What does it mean to be accurate? Um, and how is it possible for a particular point of view to be the only point of view on something? So there's that problem. And then it leans into this other problem of history should not be conceived of as the study of somebody's list of causes and events and facts and interpretations. That's not what history is. It's an, it's an inquiry, right? Um, it's, yeah, it's, and, and so this idea that you need to have an accurate game and as if somehow you would have the kids play the game, they would, you know, soak up the history and then they would be able to repeat it to you, uh, you know, on an, on an essay or in a multiple choice uh, test or some that I, I think that cheapens what history is. So, For me, the question is not, is the game accurate? The question is, does it promote useful critique and analysis of the the past? So in my mind, I, I like to have games that have what I call defensible models. So I like to have games that are 
you know, not horrible interpretations of the past in some way. So, you know, d- despite all of its other, you know, problems, the civilization games, right, make an argument that geography influences the development of states and cultures. That's a defensible historical argument. They do lots of other things that aren't so defensible. As long I like those, but ultimately what I want to ask my students to do and what I want other teachers to ask their students to do is get some evidence and critique the game. Because by critiquing, by saying this game doesn't match up with the evidence, you kind of have to know what the evidence is. To say that this game doesn't match the histor- the hist- you know, a reasonable historical narrative, you kind of have to know what that reasonable n- historical narrative is. So I think that's where the real intellectual growth happens as you learn to criticize uh, and challenge these popular media um, and not take them as you know, scriptural truth. Mm. And, and this connects very well to the next point, actually, because after that, you elaborate on the significance of the relevance of humanity's engagement with technology. So maybe let's have a deep dive into this in order to gain a better understanding for our listeners here. Sure. Um, so procedural literacy, um, this, I, I guess this is a term that doesn't always show up outside of educational uh, circles. We're not talking about procedural rhetoric, which is important in its own right, uh, developed by Bogost. Um, we're talking about procedural literacy. Students need to be literate in how computer devices function. They don't have to be able to design them, uh, but they really will benefit from understanding how they work. Um, we're seeing that right now, right, with Chat GPT, the the artificial intelligence. Ooh, um, I don't know yeah. if you have you been playing with that. Yeah, over in yeah, yeah. It's, yeah, uh... and and so um, just to just to make, use that as a basic point, um, many of us, myself included, thought that that Chat AI came up with answers by knowing the rules of English grammar um, and providing meaningful responses to things that we typed in because they seem so meaningful. The answers seem like they're written by a conscious being, not necessarily not necessarily the most well-studied being, but a, but a conscious being. Um, but that's not how it works at all, is my understanding. Apparently, it's the same as your web, as your as your cell phone, right? As your smartphone with the fill in the uh, next word function, except for it's a statistical model of billions of, of sentences across the Internet. So when it writes a sentence for you, what it says is, OK, whatever, 80 percent of the time, this word comes right after this word in people's prose. That's procedural literacy, understanding that. Understanding that it's basically just playing the odds on words and not really having any kind of functioning with grammar or rules or things like that helps us understand that this is not, um, you know, th- this is not the end. This is not this is not the robots taking us over. This is this is a tool that is very limited uh, in very important ways. Uh, and, and so there we go. Thanks to ChatGPT for giving us uh, some some topicality. I want students to understand uh, computers as be- as much as they can. I want them to understand the smartphones. I want them to understand um, um, uh, laptops. I want them to understand, you know, their Alexa st- uh, s- speakers. Programming classes are fantastic for that, but it can't. It shouldn't be the case that the only way that that students get involved with procedural literacy, with understanding computers and how they operate, through a programming class. So. 
using historical games in history classes can kind of bridge that gap because you can start to talk with people about very simple but important concepts. You can talk about variables, for example, in uh, in the in how the game stores things. That I, I have one part of my historical problem space is, is resources, and resources would be stored in a game as variables, and you can talk about game storage or, or computers. Uh, branching choices, right? The idea that at the end of the day, those uh, computer games are designed so that they have a series of binary choices and they either do one or the other. Um, um, and so at the level of code, there's very little fuzziness. It's very much uh, what I would call a mathematical model or a formal or a formal model. Understanding that as well. Um, those are some of the big ones, I think. Um, but it, it kind of serves this next point, right? That we know, I mean, certainly at least I hear about it all the time, how much humanity is in, is in the decline. I, I think history departments are really under fire in the United States, it sounds right, as far as, as far as keeping their numbers up of professors and things like that. And yet we keep, to, we seem to keep seeing over and over and over that technology, if it's going to be truly helpful, truly meaningful, truly ethical, needs to have humanity's thinking uh, involved in the questions of why we do things and how we do things and what it means. And so I I can't solve all those things in in my ninth grade class playing with a video game, but maybe I can start to have them think about, right, about AI and what does it mean for a computer to make choices? And are these things we might be able to extend to uh, broader conversations about technology? Yeah, speaking about uh, or speaking of progress, I was a bit surprised when I read your next thoughts. And let me quote here: "Using games as a learning tool does not conflict with exercise in critical reading and writing." And I was wondering: Is this really something that is still being brought up by, by, for example, your colleagues? So I don't hear it very often, but I work at, but I, I'm really privileged to work at a fantastic school that prioritizes quality, progressive education, I think. Um, you know, I've been here 20 years, so um, uh, I, I enjoy this place very much. I, I hear it in places, and I try to be sensitive to educators who are in lots of different environments. Um, the original, that, that original chapter was written in 2010 when absolutely I was hearing more often, quite simply, that games are remedial, that if you use a game or simulation in a history class, you're doing it because the kids, or excuse me, because the students, my, my students are kids, but I understand in college, they're not kids. Um, um, anyways, um, the idea that if you're using a game or a simulation or anything like that, it's because the kids can't handle real history with the, with the prejudice being that real history is in text and real history should be written about. Um, and so that was definitely something I was responding to and trying to come up with a set of intelligent arguments, hopefully they're intelligent, um, um, for how you might talk to people who are in that mindset, say your principal is in that mindset or your department chair or things like that. Um, so that that may be, that may be overcompensating, but 
I, I think it's not for this because reading and writing, critical reading and writing are still very, very important um, as things to educate our students in whatever level of education they go through. The ability to express themselves and the ability to take meaning from others' thoughts and text, these are really important skills. So I, I, you know, I, I sort of cast it as, hey, if you're worried about this, that you're not going to have kids reading and writing, don't worry about it. And hey, I want to celebrate too that that is an important goal. It's not the only thing that uh, that kids should be uh, uh, helped, taught to to interpret, but it's important. So my classes are actually, in some ways, they're very traditional classes as far as assessment, because many of my assessments are, are written essays. Um, they just happen to be about video games sometimes and how they interpret the past. Um, the game is the exploration tool. The game is the medium of presentation, if you will. It's all those things. You can actually demonstrate your learning in that in any number of in any number of ways, and that includes writing. That's that's uh, what I was going for there. I think it's still being brought up in places, but I think I I hope we're moving along uh, as a species and understand. I mean it does kind of come up every hundred years or so. It's not like this is the first time in our lives that in, in the world that somebody has said, you know, learning's not about just pouring facts into somebody's head. Learning is about, you know, inspiring interest and getting people to think that's, that's thousands of years old, that argument. Plutarch made that argument in the one hundreds. Ah, good um, old Plutarch. I know. Right. Yes. And so, <laughs> I think he said it was supposed to be a fire. You're supposed to light the fire of, yeah. of, of enthusiasm. Um, so I don't think it's I don't think it's gone. I think that maybe many of us are getting better about understanding that there are rich ways to interact with the world critically beyond just reading and writing. Um, but I still think it's there for for people who need it. If you don't need it because everybody's on board with you fantastic. At least I have it there for, in the book for somebody who wants to kind of talk through this with a more reluctant supervisor. Mm -hmm. And your your last talking point finally is, is labeled as a, a missing, I see my air quotes here, missing one. It states, uh, why fun is not an argument for using games and why engagement is a more accurate term. Has this point, in your opinion, left out of the um, have been left out of the discussion uh, so far? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I think I think we're getting. Well, I don't know if we're getting better on this one. I seem to be one of the few. But when I talk to people, they recognize it. Let me give you a little historical context. Um, when I first started doing my work on on games and history learning, I was spending my time at Uh, one of the main conferences I would go to is the University of Wisconsin-Madison's Games Learning and Society Conference. Um, Kurt Squire, who's at University of California, Irvine, and uh, a, a, a good friend and, and somebody who sort of really helped me along because he was in charge of many of those things and, 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 and brought me along to them. So shout out to Kurt if he oh. ever hears this. Um, you know? <laughs> um, and so... At that time, I was there mostly with game designers and non-history teacher educators, uh, but a lot of game designers and a lot of people in the academic field of games and learning. And 
there was an assumption in the air for many people, not everybody, for many people that games in themselves are inherently interesting and engaging. And all you need to do to have games and learning is get the right game in front of the students and they will be engaged and they will play it and the learning will just take place and it's going to be a wonderful thing. And part of that too is the idea of the digital native. I haven't heard that term used very much recently. I think it's because we've moved beyond the first generation of people who have had computers all their lives. I mean, I, I was the... I was the last generation that didn't have personal computers all their lives. I was born in 72 and 81 was the uh, PC. Um, but we used to talk about these digital natives, this idea of these kids will automatically take to computers and computer games and learn and, and, and it'll be great. And it just wasn't so for me. What I found and I've continued to find it is first and foremost, a student who has to play a video game for an academic assignment is a fun is in a fundamentally different mindset from some that same person if they privately said, "Oh, I want to play this game," and the, and they took it on. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, right, it's it, it's pretty straightforward when you when you think about it. But it's something that um, um, it's not addressed in many tutorials when uh, developers make tutorials. It's not addressed in the way that many people talk about playing with games. And I get that. All of us talking about games love games. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, you know, and so we do. We, we learn it. We, you know, we, we uh, drink lots of coffee. And I mean, you know, I'm from the age when you had to real, read the game manual, right? They had 100 page game manuals uh, and, and we read them. Um, but a student who's being assigned this is a student who may very well not like games like the one you're playing, uh, feel that playing games makes them a gamer and that might be an identity that they like or they don't like or feel alienated by. Um, they don't have the props or the, the sort of intrinsic learning things that we have, right? When we, when we learn something because we value it, right? We have all these thought processes going on checking our learning. Do I understand this? How do I figure this out? Right. Yeah, metacognition is usually um, the term. That isn't necessarily the case for a student being required to learn. Um, so going from that, I, 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 you know, I really did not want to use games are fun as an argument. One, as I said, because it really depends on the person and the and and the the environment is so much different from a student who's being assigned a game and required to play it. But two, fun doesn't equal educationally viable. Um, you know, there are educational things that are fun. It's absolutely true. We can learn through having fun, but something being fun in and of itself doesn't mean that it's going to sort of result in any kind of formal educational learning. There's got to be more to it uh, um, than that. For example, I don't assign essays to my students because they're fun. I don't say, hey, how would you feel if we got to read this ancient source and you could write me an essay arguing about the main point of, uh, of the author there? Wouldn't that be fun? And, and right? And they'd be like, yeah. <laughs> um, so, and we wouldn't do it. Um, so I think that needs to be continued. I think that I think that as we talk about games in history education, we need to continue to think about how can we use simplicity to get students to, to onboard? How can we use tutorials better? How can teachers budget time better to d just deal with the reality that 
you have lots of different learners coming to these games and you're going to need to think about how they learn them. Yeah. Um, but engagement, I think, is real. I think there is something about seeing a moving system and getting to critique the parts and being empowered and saying, go at this. Tell us what's wrong with it. Tell us what's not working so well. I think that is more engaging than simply sitting and having somebody uh, tell you what happened in the past and why. Yeah. Well, we are entering the final round now, so to speak. And this is where the, this is the time, actually, where I'd like to ask my guests always for a little meta reflection. Uh, okay. What aspects and ideas would you have loved to include in your, yeah, well, revised book, but maybe there is a version 3.0, who knows, mm -hmm. that who did knows? not make the cut? And secondly, I'm really excited to ask this one. Where do you see digital game studies as a research field in general at the moment? Yeah, great questions. So um, I'm really, I'm really happy with how uh, 2.0 happened, gaming the past. But there's absolutely places um, that I would have wanted to include. Uh, I would have liked to have, and and when I say more time, the time was on me. I wanted a second edition out, and I wanted it to be out in a reasonable amount of time. So I could have spent longer doing it. Routledge would surely have let me, but I, I really wanted to get it, uh, get it done. So if I do slip and say I wanted to have time, I want to be clear that was on that was on me. Um, but one of the things I felt I didn't have time for, and I definitely didn't have space for, um, was mobile games. I think I mentioned them, um, but I think that um, I think that they are uh, they are reality. They are one of the major ways. Um, they are one of the major ways that people encounter video games. Um, and so I would have liked to study them more. Uh, I would have liked to, you know, think about them. I, I talked a bit in a draft about um, one genre. We didn't talk about it uh, really, and that's okay. Uh, genre is a critical part of all of this with historical problem spaces and all games. Genres shape their histories. So I was looking at... Um, mobile games of the type like uh, Dominations and Rise of Cultures and things like that, where you're right building a civilization, but you've got a limited amount of, of actions that you can take and you can pay more money if you want to get more actions. And so I called them, I forget, like time labor management games. Um, I would have liked to do more with that. And I, and I want to experiment um, with um, um, using mobile games in the classroom, so that would have been a good, that would have been a good place to do it. Uh, I but it would have required. I, I I have lots to learn, and there are people who are much farther along in this uh, than me that I'm going to uh, that I'm going to borrow from. Shout out, Kate. Um, um, and yes, okay, so that would be one of them. Uh, I would have liked to include uh, a full kind of historical problem space appendix that like listed all the terms and everything in a nice place. Cause I think it presents it really well, but I would love to just have a, have a section in there that uh, uh, teachers could draw from and be like, okay, here's my handbook. This is how we can talk about analyzing games. So those would be some things that I would like to add, but really I was very happy um, with, uh, I was very happy to have a chance 10 years later to really go back in and a lot of the things that I assumed or held true I, I didn't anymore and to really kind of update it for a new group of educators um, game studies as a research field um, 
So other people have talked much more eloquently about this uh, than I have. I believe uh, Andrew Elliott at Adigra Italia, there's a video you can still look at on where historical game studies are, are uh, coming. Um, they're everywhere. I think, I think, I think we're starting to get to the point where people are recognizing historical game studies as a bit of a field. Um, but, but it's really early. Um, you know, the actual, if you, if you count, you know, if you count it in terms of monographs and my books among them, then game, then historical game studies have only been around about a decade. Um, and, and we didn't necessarily recognize we were anything for, 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 right for a while. So, um, I think, um, the places that excite me the most as far as game studies as a research field, um, my area is, is on what I would call kind of the design side, the developer side. I'm very interested in how designers and developers act as historians and make these digital works. Um, and there are, uh, you know, with my historical problem space framework, I focus a lot on the internal structures of games. There's all sorts of other developer work that needs to be done. Um, that's really great. Ilva Grufstead uh, came out with a book uh, last year that I got to be an editor on and the title escapes me, but it's with Dick Reuter and it's Ilva Grufstead. And it is on paradox the paradox company and how sort of real life everyday strictures and structures and plans and purposes um really shape the development process shape the history that goes into games um and so that's a great one in this field and esther wright came out with a book recently also with de Gruyter, looking at rockstar games and looking at how among other things these are i'm, I'm giving very simple accounts but how um um the cinema, how how Western cinemas influenced uh, Red Dead Redemption. And so I think understanding more as much as we can where developers um, uh, are getting their ideas from and how the external pressures shape it. That being said, the work on the work on empire, the work on hegemony in video games um, that's being done is really, really exciting as well. Looking at um, how games often perpetuate um the status quo and the idea of a largely white, largely male, largely Euro-American, largely, you know, and, and the list could go on point of view in those games. And so I think that's uh, that's getting really exciting, too, is looking at sort of imperialism and, and hegemony um, in education. What we need most and some people are doing it is more player studies. What are players taking away from historical games when they're playing them? What what are they making you know, what are the, how are they making sense about the past in those games? Um, so those are some areas that uh, I think we're going. But the thing that's great is historical game studies is looking at all sorts of stuff that I, that I don't even know about yet. Um, so I'm hoping for, you know, a really rich and varied next decade. I'm trying to do my best. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you are. And I appreciate it. We, uh, we, we, don't, we, don't, we don't get to all talk about this as much as we should. So thank you, Rudolph, for, for doing this. It's a great service. No, thank you very much. <laughs> well, I've taken a lot of your time. So maybe, only maybe, what are you working on right now? And of course, what will you be playing next? So I've got a couple of little things I'm working on that I don't think I'm supposed to talk about yet. So I won't. Ooh, secret, um, secret. But the thing that, that I think that I can talk, I know, right? Uh, it's it's not deeply secret. <laughs> um, but the thing that I can talk about, I am in the 
uh, uh, peer review stage of a manuscript proposal for a second book with Routledge, sort of a follow-up called, oh my gosh, I can't remember the name. I had some, I had some clever name, uh, but then they changed it to a more practical one because they're always trying to be practical editors. Uh, but basically the game, the, the, the book is this, how to, if you are a history educator or, or a, a game designer, how to make historical games, board games and interactive text games that work in the classroom. Um, how as an educator to make those games, if you wanted to have games for your kids to learn about the past from, and then how to teach students in your classes to design physical games and text-based choice games. Um, so I'm really excited because I think this is an area, in some ways it might seem old school, but it's not. Board games are are still very much in their infancy of being really recognized by people as, as incredible things. I mean, they've been used for 50 years or more, but um, we're, we're starting to give them prop, uh, proper respect now. And so I'm hoping to provide a guide that lets anybody say, okay, I can make games for a classroom of kids that would help them learn things, history games, and I can have them do their own games because that's where the, the, the best learning, hands down, best historical learning that ever takes place involving games is when you have to design one yourself and you need to research it to make sure that it fits the evidence. Um, so that's what I'm working on next and I'm excited about it. Yeah, that sounds awesome. Awesome, awesome. So um, I, I hope, of course, then we will talk into each other maybe um, when the next project is due. And I really would love to do that because that this sounds like, a, it sounds like a great project. So thank you, thank oh. you, thank you for being on the show today. I really enjoyed it. And, um, well, take care and goodbye. <laughs> Thank you so much for the chance to do this. It's been great talking with you, Rudolph. So, dear listeners, I hope you like this episode. If you are an author and or an editor in the field of digital game studies yourself and want to talk about your latest publication, do not hesitate to contact me under rudolf.indust at googlemail.com. Alternatively, please send me a direct message on social media. You will find me under Rudolf Indust almost everywhere. See you in a bit.